Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings 17. As I mentioned, a brand new sermon series today called Two Friends and One Hero. We're going to be looking at the, the miracles that God performed through Elijah and Elisha. We're going to look, look some at that relationship. They had a very interesting, uh, a very meaningful relationship. Uh, but most importantly, we're going to see how these stories, these prophets actually take us to uh, the person and work of Jesus Last week we looked at uh, the resurrection of Christ, naturally, uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, as we should have. And what we looked at was really the benefits of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We didn't really spend any time, or very little time at least, looking at the events of that resurrection Sunday. Neither the morning when the angel would appear to Mary and the other women announcing the resurrection of Jesus, that he had been risen just as he said, nor the afternoon of that same day, nor the evening. Now, had we looked at some uh, more of that day, namely the afternoon, we would have seen that in that afternoon that he was raised from the dead, Jesus made the seven-mile trek to Emmaus, a little town, again, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and somewhere along that journey... He ran into two other men who were making a similar trip, again, to the same destination. And over the span of about two or three or four hours, we don't know exactly, Jesus took the time to explain to them how the whole Bible was about him. How the whole Bible, of course, what they had at that time was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, how even the Old Testament was all about Jesus. Now, that conversation didn't start off very well. Uh, Luke 24 records it this way, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, starting from the very beginning, The writings of Moses, through the prophets, through the writings, Jesus explained how all of this is about him. Now, he would do that on the road to Emmaus. He would then do it later on that same evening to the disciples, showing them how how the scriptures, again, what they had, the Old Testament, was all about Jesus. Systematically, he goes through this study. He would open their minds and their hearts to this reality that the Bible was all about him. Uh, The Scottish theologian uh, Ian DeGuid writes this, Thus, when we interpret the Old Testament correctly, in accordance with Jesus' own teaching, the central message on every page is Christ. Now listen to this next sentence. It is important. That does not mean that every verse taken by itself contains a hidden allusion to Christ, but that the central thrust of every passage leads us in some way to the central message of the gospel, which is, of course, Jesus and him crucified. The Bible is not a self-help book. It is not a to-do list. It is not a road map that teaches us how to get to heaven. It is not a book of rules. The Bible is primarily, ultimately, a story of a loving God and his plan to save, to redeem a sin-cursed world through the person of his Son, who is the locus, the object, the hero, the subject of the whole story. But how do the Old Testament stories of droughts and floods 
and weddings and feasts and fights and floating axe heads and all of these things, how do they actually take us to Jesus? That's what I hope to show you through this series. We'll have a couple of other pastors who will jump in, which I'm excited about as well in this series. Over the next six to seven weeks, we're going to be looking at several really remarkable stories featuring Elijah and Elisha, uh, two prophets of God, and how God used them in incredible ways. So before I get to the text, let me just set it up for you. It needs a little bit of historical background. Um, the events that we're going to read about happened some 3,000 years uh, ago. Um, they, it was uh, over 1,000 years before Jesus was born, 1,000 years before the Roman uh, Empire was established. And at this point in the story, the once glorious united monarchy of Israel is now a thing of the past. So it's probably 50 or 60 years after that. Gone are the days of Saul and David and Solomon, and now you have this divided kingdom with Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and they each have their own king. But what's happened, and what will happen over time, is there's virtually, there's almost no good king throughout all of history. I mean, there's, with a few exceptions, very few exceptions, but almost all of the kings end up to be evil, idolatrous, wicked kings, and the worst one of all of them was Ahab. And the worst woman of all was Ahab's wife, Jezebel. There are too many women of the Bible who have songs written about them, just how uh, diabolical they were. But Jezebel does, including the, the haunting song of uh, the same name uh, by, by uh, Sade in the, uh, the mid-1980s uh, called Jezebel. Uh, this was a woman who was scheming and plotting and evil and... Uh, duplicitous and unashamedly wicked. And Jezebel wore the pants in the family, so to speak. So I believe it was Philip Ryken who said that uh, Ahab and Jezebel were, were kind of the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. Now for you of a younger generation, you might think Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are from the world of fiction, the Joker and Harley Quinn. Madness was on their minds. This is what I'm getting at. Madness was on their minds continually, and they were always working and plotting on how they would bring about their wicked scheme. And to confront Ahab and Jezebel, God sends Elijah, the prophet, whom we're introduced to in 1 Kings uh, 17. So let me just so you a little bit of context. Let me read. Let me start with uh, 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33, and then we'll jump into uh, chapter 17. So here reads the word of the Lord. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So there you get a sense of who Ahab was. Now, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. 
you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. So remember, Elijah is a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, and uh, which was actually had more people and more power than Judah in the south. But Israel was also spiraling into greater idolatry and greater degradation at a faster pace than Judah. I saw an interview uh, recently with Mark Hamill, the guy who played uh, Luke Skywalker on the original uh, Star Wars, the first of the original trilogy. And he was talking about this scene in the first movie um, where, I guess it was Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca and Princess Leia are in the trash compactor. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody remember this? Um, and the walls are closing in. And so they're trying everything frantically to stop this from happening. They grab this uh, big uh, uh, metal uh, spear or whatever. They can't stop it. It keeps closing in and closing in. Well, between uh, 1 Kings 11 to 17, chapters 11 to 17, we're given sort of an image of this uh, nation where the walls are closing in spiritually. It's becoming more and more dark, more and more evil, more and more idolatrous. Things are getting worse and worse. So Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, has been totally abandoned. No one is listening to him anymore. Uh, instead, idolatry is rampant. So you have Baal's everywhere. And God sends Elijah to tell King Ahab to kind of announce his uh, impending judgment to tell him that God is going to stop the rain. Now, there are a couple of especially noteworthy things here. The first one um, is that Elijah, when he introduces Ahab to the living God, he refers to him as that multiple times, the God who lives. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And the other thing that's noteworthy in this, the, the section I just read is the kind of abrupt and unimpressive way that we are introduced to Elijah. More on that in a second. But let's talk about this first noteworthy thing that God, why would Elijah say multiple times to Ahab he's, that this is the God who lives? Well, um, the Jezebel, again, this, this evil king's wife, she wanted not just to be a worshiper of Baal herself, which she was, uh, but she wanted the worship of Baal to become the national religion of Israel. Baal was the storm-riding god of rain and fertility, but interestingly, Baal was considered dead during the dry season, and even by, according to his own prophets, only came alive during the rainy season. He died during the dry season. He came back to life during the rainy season. And what Elijah's doing here is he rebukes uh, Ahab and Ahab's the false god Baal as he's saying, this God of Israel is the God who lives. He is the living God. He's not dead. He's not passive. He's not removed from his creation. He is active. He's involved. He's in the heart of the action. And he doesn't die off during the off season. So Ahab, again, making this, this stark contrast between the living God and Baal. He says, this God, the living God, is always alive and always working out his plan to redeem a broken and sin-cursed world. And it's a plan that he's always had before the ages began. 
So the next noteworthy thing is just kind of the abrupt, uh, unimpressive way that we're introduced to Elijah. Unlike the other prophets of God in the Old Testament, and almost every time a prophet is introduced, we're given some, at least background information or family lineage. You know, we get Isaiah, the son of Amos, or Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, about whom we're given sort of the when, the where, and the how, but not with Elijah. Elijah is a nobody from a nowhere town, Tishbe, that no one's ever heard of, that just shows up. As one commentator says, an unknown prophet from uncertain origins walks in unannounced and speaks on behalf of God. He gets no introduction, no buildup. He just walks into the action, prophetic guns blazing. This is the first we've heard about Elijah. This is the first we've heard from Elijah. And this is all we get. But he does enter the scene with a bang. He confronts the most wicked king in Israel's history. He just shows up and says, here's how this whole thing's going to go down. Now, actually, he could have been killed for that. He could have been killed on the spot. But he's not concerned. In fact, he's so bold and so audacious that he doesn't even use the normal prophetic greeting. He doesn't say anything like, thus says the Lord which the prophets often invoked. He doesn't say, the Lord said to me. He just says, there won't be any rain until I say. He's carrying out the will of God, and so he speaks with unparalleled confidence. And of course, as we, the more we learn about Elijah, we, we find out quickly this is a very bold stranger. Next week, we'll see that he strikes down 450 false prophets by calling down a fire from heaven. Uh, at one point, he ran 17 miles from Mount Carmel uh, to Jezreel ahead of horses and chariots, so he outruns uh, the horses. Um, he does all these incredible things, prompting even those who would encounter him to ask, who is this guy? Who in the world is this guy? Now, we might think, you might think that when we read the story, that the point is, be bold like Elijah. Be courageous like Elijah, or stand up to power like Elijah, or, or even maybe broader, choose your heroes wisely. Those are not but bad things entirely, but that's not what the author has in mind here. Or we might even think, when we read about these incredible, amazing things that the mysterious Elijah does, we might think, well, I could, I could never be used by God. It takes a hero to be used by God. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus' brother James tells us that Elijah is nothing special. He just serves a living God. James says this about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In other words, Elijah actually was nothing special. He was just like us. He was no superhero. He was, just a, he was no special kind of Christian. He was no unusually gifted human being. He just made himself available to God's call. And in his weakness, he trusted God. About this passage, Old Testament scholar Gary Millar writes, this chapter is not here for us to imitate it is here to give us something on which to meditate. 
This is not a picture of, our, of, of an exceptional hero we are to emulate. It is a picture of our exceptional God in action, a God we are supposed to think about and respond to. Of course, the question is, what are we supposed to think about God? How are we supposed to respond? Well, I mentioned those two noteworthy things about the early part of this passage, and I think we see that our God is a living God who's actively bringing about His plan, and He uses unlikely people just like us. Here's our first point this morning, and we'll get to the other two a little more quickly, but the living God employs ordinary people as agents in His extraordinary plan of redemption. So we get the joy, and He gets the glory. So often we think that God needs unusually gifted people, special people, highly trained people, in order to be used by Him. Now this, is, of course, is especially true in the age of the celebrity pastor, right? You can, uh, you can go home this afternoon... And you can find a hundred preachers better than I am. And you can say, oh, well, I listen to so-and-so, and I listen to so-and-so. And, and even pastors can get the idea, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have you know, 3.2 million Instagram followers. I'm never going to have whatever. We, we live in this age where it's very easy to say there's so many people better than I am to do these things. But throughout the Bible... God uses just regular people, just ordinary people. In fact, in the New Testament, God entrusts the entire ministry of the gospel, the global expansion of the kingdom of God, to the most pedestrian people. Untrained, uneducated fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, some other folks. The living God is advancing His kingdom. He is building His church. He is redeeming His world. What does he call us to do? Believe and make ourselves available. What do you think are the most common excuses that people give when they're called by God to do something? Well, there are three that surfaced that came to my mind right away. The first one is family. Well, I can't do that. I can't, I can't leave my family. I, gotta, you know, I don't want to be far from my family. I remember uh, Jesus calls this man, he says, well, I'd like to follow you, but I've got to go take care of my, my ailing father, make sure that he's ready before he dies. So family. The second one is money. Either I have to stay and manage my money, I need more money, I don't have enough money, or in some cases I've got too much money. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus beckons him to follow, and he's listening, he's engaged, and he's, he's interacting, he looks like, yes. And then he says, and Jesus says, well, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the text tells us that he went away downface, sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Money. What's the third one? It's actually a perceived lack of ability. I, I can't do this. I, I can never do what you call me to do. Remember Moses? God says, I want you to go, and you're going to lead these people. You're going to, say, you're going to talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says, wait a second. Like, I'm not really a very good speaker. Like, I'm not very eloquent. What does God say? Who is it that made your tongue? See, it's a perceived lack of ability. We have all kinds of reasons that will not make ourselves available. But I think here we have this obscure prophet with very little introduction whom God uses in incredible ways to show that he's the one who will do the work. He's the one who brings life to the dead. He's the reconciler of all things. What he calls us to do is believe and make ourselves available. Have you made yourself available 
to be used by the living God. I don't know what that looks like for you exactly. Could Maybe God's calling you to reconsider your career. He might be. We have uh, had the great privilege over the last three years, four years, to have three uh, pastoral interns, very uh, gifted individuals who, who were really just eager to follow God, and they follow God into vocational ministry. One of those, even this morning, Logan Cobb is, is in an interview weekend right now uh, trying to discern if God is calling him to be part of a church plant in Fort Myers, Florida. Now, I have to say, it's a lot easier to discern a call to Fort Myers, Florida than it is to Minnesota or South Dakota, but, uh, but that's what he's doing. He's made himself available. What does it look like for you? Maybe God's calling you to use your gifts more directly in service to his kingdom. Maybe God's calling you to serve in a new ministry, to take on a new challenge. Maybe God's calling you to leave home. Maybe God's calling you to speak up for the voiceless. Maybe God's calling you to step out of your comfort zone. You don't have to be extraordinary. You just have to be willing. God uses normal people. Well, in this story, uh, the brook that Elijah was living next to, that God sent him to, dries up because the rain stopped, just as God promised. So God tells Elijah to go into the city of Zarephath and Sidon, which was deep in the heart of enemy territory. This was actually Jezebel's homeland. So, So Ahab's father... Omri arranged for Ahab to be married. So it was an arranged marriage to Jezebel, whose father was the king of Sidon. So God sends Elijah into this enemy territory where Jezebel's homeland, remember what we said about Jezebel, she is as wicked and maniacal as they come. So this would not have been a safe place for Elijah, but he follows God's command, goes into the city, which is the poorest, where the poorest of the poor lived. And Elijah finds this widow gathering sticks. She and her son live alone, and they're literally on the verge of starving to death. In fact, they're actually making preparations to die together from starvation. Well, Elijah asked this widow to bring him some water to drink and some bread. So what do you think she says? She says, well, we just have enough for the two of us for a couple of more days, and then we're going to starve to death. But Elijah says, well, bring me what you've got. And she does. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 17. And she, this is the widow, went and did as Elijah said. And she and he, her son, and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So this was a widow. And widows in the ancient Near Eastern world Uh, They had nothing. They had no one to speak for them. They were the most helpless, voiceless, uh, desperate people alive. They were actually worse off than slaves. Especially widows in Sidon, which was this impoverished land off the Mediterranean coast. And this is not just a, a widow. She is a pagan widow, which means that she is most likely a worshiper of Baal. This was the land of Baal. She has zero relationship with the God of Israel or his prophets, and yet immediately she does what the Lord says. She feeds God's man and preserves his life. This is another example, by the way, of God using just unexpected uh, people to accomplish his divine plan. And just like the situation where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, 
This widow and her son never run out of food. They keep digging in the jar, but none of it's depleted. They eat for many days, and the jars of food and water never run out. Again, all this happens exactly like God said it would. So what, is, what are we to learn from this passage? What does the author have in mind? Well, I think given the contrast made and so on, here's our second point. Amid uncertain circumstances in an uneven world, the living God is always true to his word. For several years, I served in a church um, with a fellow elder who was way, way up in Disney. You probably heard me talk about this guy before. And um, I'm not talking about a ride operator at Disneyland or, you know, somebody who worked as a cashier in the, the snack shop. This guy was like, he was way, way up there. And, and he was sometimes saying our elder means he would talk about the optics. In fact, he said this all, it was one of his favorite words, the optics. And to be honest, I'd never even heard that before he talked about it. But he would always say, we have to make sure we're looking at how this appears. How does this appear? And I really didn't care at all. Uh, in retrospect, I probably should have cared a little bit more as I look back on it. But uh, I didn't care about the optics. I didn't care about how it appeared. But it was all about, you know, we'll, we have to make sure how this appears. But the thing is, the way things appear can be misleading. This is certainly true when it comes to God. There are times in our lives and in our world when everything appears to be going off the rails and we might easily conclude by appearances that God has jettisoned his plan or abandoned the world to its own devices or even worse, decided to renege on his word. But here appearances are misleading. I'm sure in this story Elijah must have thought, God, you told me to go to the brook and to drink from the water there and, and, and to survive there. And then you send me, uh, then the brook dries up. And then you send me into a village where I stay with a woman whose son then dies. What exactly are you doing here? But everything comes to pass exactly the way that God told Elijah. God says to Elijah, go tell Ahab that it's going to stop, uh, it's gonna stop raining. And shortly that's what happens. God tells Elijah to go to this little stream in a remote area east of the Jordan River where God says he will provide for Elijah, and God commands the ravens to look after him. Bread and meat twice a day. God tells Elijah to inform this widow and his son that they will eat and drink and their jars will not be empty, and that's exactly what happens. God is always true to his word. When we read the scriptures, we get to hear from God. We get fed by God. And what he says can be trusted even when our circumstances, even when appearances seem to suggest otherwise, even when the optics don't make sense. God is doing something. Our future is his past, so to speak. He sees it all at once. And in his infinite wisdom, he's working out a plan for our good and his glory. And he'll show his faithfulness yet again. Look at verses 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me uh, to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. 
And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I have one of my four children. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I'm even going to use a gender nondescript language here so you can't uh, figure out the mystery. Uh, but I have one of my four kids who, um, when something bad happens, this child immediately has to find out uh, who's to blame. This child has to assign blame to someone. And, and if I give this child advice and things don't go well, look out. This child says to me, Dad, but you told me. You told me. And then I am the one to blame. Now, they're growing in this area, I think, um, but nothing bad can happen without someone being to blame. Maybe you have someone like that in your life. Maybe, maybe you're like that. It is the, it's actually the natural default mode of the human heart. We want someone else to blame for our misfortunes. That's what the widow does here initially. She blames Elijah for the death of her son. She says, why did you come here? Well, why did you even trouble us? Was it to expose my sins? To kill my son because of my disobedience? Now, how fascinating that she instantly equates suffering with personal sin. Much like Job's friends did centuries before this lady. She knows she's a sinner, and now she concludes that it's time for her to pay up. Now, what she's really saying is, what have I done to deserve this? Why would you do this to me? I opened my home to you. I've been sacrificial. Why would you do this to me? This is called uh, moralizing suffering, by the way. Concluding that when something bad happens to us or someone in our family, that it has to be because of something we've done that God is punishing us for. So often we see suffering as either some random sort of meaningless pain or, or tragedy or the God's punishment for some secret or unknown sin in our lives. Of course, what does this result in? Anxiety and fear and, and suspicion toward God? But that's not how God works. That's not what the Scriptures teach. If God wanted, us to, wanted to give us what we deserve, we'd be, we'd be dead. We've, remil, we've rebelled rather a million times against Him. Even our best actions are stained with selfish motives. But God is not in the scorekeeping business. If you put your faith in Jesus, you never have to worry about getting what you deserve. Jesus actually got what you deserve. He took the punishment for your sins on the cross. And what do you get? You get what Jesus deserves. Full acceptance by God. Full approval by God. The Father's delight, a new resurrected body, an eternal glory. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that there won't be horizontal consequences to 
uh, our actions, but we never have to worry again, will I get what I fully deserve? Our suffering is not God trying to harm us, but the consequences of living in a broken and sin-cursed world. But But the widow in the story, she doesn't see this. Immediately, she wants to assign blame. And then Elijah turns, and he blames God. Is this how you respond to the woman who saved my life, he asks? By killing her son? But ever so graciously, God listens to Elijah's voice, verse 22, which is pretty amazing in itself, given the tone. And as Elijah spreads out over this child three times, God brings the boy back to life. And in a very understated way, Elijah carries the boy down to his mother and he says, See, your son lives. This is the first time in the Bible that we see anyone is raised from the dead. And it has tremendous significance. Remember what I said to you about God has always had this plan since before the ages began? This plan to redeem creation from sin and death, from the clutches of Satan. Well, if we go back to the early chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve created by God to live with God, to obey God, to worship Him, to glorify Him, to enjoy sweet fellowship with their Creator. But they're deceived by the serpent, the devil, and they rebel against God, bringing upon the world the curse of sin. And the curse would be far-reaching as it would extend to Uh, beyond just the physical world and the physical body to the spiritual, so that every person ever born after Adam would be born in sin, separated from God, in desperate need of being reconciled to Him. You and I are born in opposition to God, in need of being made right with God. And the only way for us to be brought back to God is for our sin penalty to be paid. Because of our rebellion against God, which manifests in our thoughts and our actions, our words, deeds, motives, someone has to be punished. Because God is holy, someone has to be punished, and someone actually must pay with his life. The wages of sin is death. It should be us. It should be us. We're the ones who sinned against God, but Jesus steps in, fully God and fully man, and then dies in our place, the innocent for the guilty. And then, as we talked about last week, God raised Jesus from the dead as a declaration that what Jesus did was a sufficient sacrifice. Well, here in 1 Samuel 17, or 1 Kings rather, we see a preview, the first glimpse of of God's death-destroying power. The widow's boy is dead, and God raises him from the dead. This is meant to point us to a greater coming resurrection where the power of God would be on display in raising Jesus, God's Son, from the dead. One Old Testament theologian writes this, This is God's opening salvo in a war that will finally be resolved spectacularly when death is defeated by Jesus. In this story, God is announcing His intention to sort out this rather large post-Eden problem. This chapter is launching us toward Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and victory over death itself. You know, I said that God keeps His word, one of the points we made this morning. Well, one of His first promises, one of God's first promises, sometimes referred to as theologians as the proto-euangelion, the initial first glimpse of the gospel, is God's promise that from the seed of the woman would be born 
one who would crush the serpent's head, one who would ultimately destroy death and hell and restore shalom. Well, here in 1 Kings 17, God is showing us what that will look like. Here's our final point this morning. God's ultimate promise is fulfilled and His faithfulness proved in the raising of Jesus from the dead, an event foreshadowed by Elijah's miracle. So when God raised this widow's son from the dead, He was declaring in a world of idol worshipers, in a broken and sin-cursed world filled with false gods and hard-hearted people, I have power over death and my plan of redemption will be accomplished. And for all who believe, we're actually part of that plan. We are agents in God's plan of redemption. If you've trusted in Christ this morning, you are part of God's plan of salvation. You are an agent of His plan of redemption. You are called, like I am, to share the good news about this kingdom of God. And as we do, God is bringing more and more people into that kingdom. And as more and more people enter the kingdom of God by repentance and faith, we see lives changed, we see marriages changed, we see cities changed, entire cultures changed by the gospel. God is reconciling the world to himself, redeeming the world from sin and slavery. And here we see in 1 Kings 17, the earliest glimpse of that death-destroying power at work. The mother received back her son. Imagine the joy of that reunion. Imagine how it was when those two were united again and she was presented uh, with a living son. Well, that will happen a thousand times more and then some. The resurrection of Jesus spells the great future resurrection where loved ones are brought back together in Christ. But more than that, it signals the ultimate reconciliation between God and His children. The victory in this story is the shadow of a greater victory. Sin brought separation from God. Death entered the world because of sin. But those who believe in Jesus Christ have been reconciled back to God and now await the return of this same Jesus who will bring us to be with Him and we will see Him face to face and enjoy eternity forever with Him and all those who have gone before who were in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to see the glory of your salvation this morning. And help us to believe what you have spoken to us this morning by your word. Help us to see that this uh, story of Elijah raising a widow's boy from the dead is meant to point us to your death-defying power, your resurrection work, your redemptive plan, all of which centers on Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to trust in that plan and to trust in that person. I pray that you would move in such a way that our faith is strengthened, our love for you deepened, our love for our neighbor heightened. Lord, and for those who do not know you this morning, if there's someone here who's outside of Christ, Father, I ask that you would do the miraculous work of quickening a dead heart bringing those people to saving faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.